All right, Matthew, the fourth chapter. We're in a sermon series. Uh, and if you've got your Bibles, that's page 809. If you don't have a Bible, use your pew Bible um, and you can find it there. And actually we'll back up a little bit and do Matthew, the third, start in the third chapter. But we've been in a uh, sermon series we're calling The Storyline. We've been in it through all of 2020, pretty much. And we find ourselves last week, we crossed over into the New Testament. So now we come into um, just the life of Jesus. The, we're gonna call this the preparation of Jesus. And even though that Jesus is perfect, it's not like he needs to be pre prepared, but what we're seeing happening here, and this is why, why we're doing the storyline is we wanna, like, we wanna see the present of what's happening in Matthew, the third chapter and the fourth chapter. We also wanna remember what we've learned in the past. And then we wanna look forward to the future in our own lives and, and, and even the future work of Christ himself as he returns again. And so that's why we're kind of seeing this as this thread. And so even in this, you'll see Jesus' uh, Jesus's baptism. You're gonna be like, what's going on? Maybe you'll be like, what's going on? Maybe you never really thought about it, but we're gonna tie it in even into the Old Testament. Okay, Matthew, the third chapter. We'll start in the 13th verse. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to, be, to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you, lest your foot, unless you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, as your word declares that whatever has been written in the former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God, we ask you, the God of endurance and encouragement, that you would allow us to live in harmony with one another in accord with your son, Jesus, that together with one voice, we may glorify you. Lord, we pray that you would give us great hope in this time through the scriptures, that we would know that, Lord, that you, everything, every moment of our lives, that you're in complete control of, of those days, Lord. That we be stirred up to love and good works by your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, thank you. You could be seated. 
So what we see happening here um, in Matthew, the third chapter and the fourth chapter with Jesus's baptism and, uh, and Jesus's temptation is, is Jesus is retracing almost step by step the steps that the Israelites have taken. That I know like when we look at baptism, we think of baptism as just a, a New Testament thing. We see it starting with John the Baptist, John the baptizer. I mean, that's what he is. And then you see Jesus being baptized. And then you see in the, you know, in the epistles and in the rest of the writing, the command, you even see Jesus commanding us as his church, as he founds his church to go and to make disciples, baptizing them. And so sometimes you may think that baptism is just a New Testament thing. And I think that the act or the ordinance of baptism, we could say that about that. But what baptism is symbolizing is something bigger. And that's what we're doing as we study the storyline. We're looking for patterns in the Bible. And here we see a pattern emerging. It's the pattern of passing through the waters. And what passing through the waters symbolizes is it symbolizes kind of a couple of things. It symbolizes both judgment and grace. It symbolizes death and life. It symbolizes newness. God is doing a new thing. Something new is occurring, a new creation, a new movement, a new identity. And so as we think back through other places where we see these things happening and and water is is happening as well, it's surrounding themselves with water. So think back into all the way back into Genesis chapter six, when you have Noah and the flood, Noah and the water, water is coming up from the ground, water is falling from the sky. And what's happening there, as we saw in in Genesis chapter six, is God is bringing judgment bring judgment to the earth. He's, he's ridding the earth of sinners, but we also not only see judgment, but we see grace. We see God providing a way for Noah and his family to pass through the waters in an ark. So Noah, uh, God instructs Noah to build an ark. He builds it. And then that's the vessel of the vessel of grace in which they pass through. We see death and life happening in the flood. Death to the unrighteous and the righteous, the, those that are recipients of grace. You see that New, you know, life. He's preserving their life, giving them life. We see mark of something new occurring. After the floodwaters rescind, we even have a, of God making a, a declaration to Noah to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. That's the same thing he said back in Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve. It's the same mandate, but it's now a new creation is coming into being. And so we see this as they pass through the waters. We see this. We saw this, I should say, as well with uh, Israel. So we could fast forward a little bit, even though there's other places in Genesis, we can allude to this, especially with Jacob. But fast forward all the way into Exodus and you have the Israelites who have multiplied. They've done exactly as God has commanded of them to do. We see that in the Abrahamic uh, covenant as well. They've been fruitful and they multiplied. They're now so, they've multiplied so much that they're threatening the largest superpower of that time in Egypt. And then what we see happening is uh, we see them in slavery. We see God bringing freedom to them. God's setting them free, but in order for them to get through freedom, they got to pass through the waters, the Red Sea. They come up to the Red Sea and God works a miracle. He, he, he uh, divides the Red Sea and the Israelites, they pass through the Red Sea, but then Pharaoh's army, it, it gives suit. They're following after. They go into the same like ruts and with their chariots and the, and the same uh, chasm that the Israelites have just passed through. And then God brings judgment on them and the sea swallows them up, crushing them and destroying them. So you see the same pattern. 
You see judgment upon Pharaoh's army. You see grace and mercy being shown to the Israelites. You see death happening. You see life and you see newness coming. They're leaving Egypt behind. They're leaving slavery behind and they're now a free people as they're heading out into the promised land. See, they passed through the Red Sea. The same thing has happened. Now they're being led even of God. We remember that. Make a mental check about that. They're being led of God. Remember, there's a pillar, a fire, and a cloud that's leading them now. They're led in, of God into the wilderness where they're gonna be tested for 40, for 40 years. They're gonna go into this wilderness and this time of testing. And it's there that the Israelites fail. It's in the wilderness that they fail. They, they see that they're faithless and judgment comes upon them again. A whole generation will die in those 40 years in the wilderness. A new generation will spring up. New generation springs up, even a new leader. Moses is dead. Joshua, whose name is Jesus in Hebrew. Joshua's name means Jesus. Same cat, same, well, not same person, but same name. Now you have a new leader in Joshua and he's gonna lead the Israelites, this new generation into the promised land. But guess what? There's a water that they've got to cross. The river Jordan. And so as we, we saw this, as we studied it, as they stepped out into the water, the water parts. It's like the Red Sea in miniature happening again. And the Israelites, this new generation, are crossing over out of the wilderness, heading towards the promised land. It's again, a picture of God's grace to them, a picture of newness happening to the people. They're leaving the wilderness and they're heading into the promised land. And now what Jesus is doing is Jesus is doing a similar thing as he reenacts the steps of the Israelites. That every place where the Israelites were unfaithful, Jesus will prove to be faithful. That what we see here, even in the declaration of the Father at Jesus' baptism, what the Father declares of Christ is that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Throughout the book of the Exodus, throughout the Old Testament, God has referred to Israel as his, as his son, but his son who is unfaithful, his son that is disobedient, his son that is faithless. And now there is a new son, the true son, the begotten son who will be faithful and be obedient. Jesus's baptism is symbolic of this judgment and mercy and death and life that we see, the same pattern. Jesus is symbolizing that in his own baptism. He will actually do it in his death. His baptism is not just a symbol of something that's happened in the past, but it's a symbol of something that will happen in the future. Jesus's death and, and placing in the grave and his resurrection, it, baptism is symbolizing that very thing. His baptism is foreshadowing, it's prefiguring what will take place on the cross and will take place in the tomb. Here, Jesus is passing through the waters, passing through the judgment of God, he will do that as he dies on a cross. He will usher in new life and new creation. He will be the one who will give mercy and grace as he will be resurrected again. He's the one who will take us to the promised land. But even first, before he can do that, he'll go into the wilderness. A couple of things about Jesus's baptism here. Not only is it prefiguring all of this that's about to happen, not only is it going back, hearkening back to what's happening throughout the Old Testament, a, a picture of judgment, but yet also a picture of grace, a picture of death, but also a picture of life, marking newness. Also, Jesus's baptism here, in Jesus's baptism, he is identifying with sinners. That the baptism that John is offering is a baptism of repentance. 
Jesus is sinless, but in his baptism, he is identifying with you and I. He's identifying with all those who will be baptized in the future in his name. He's identifying with them in, in, in their, not as a sinner, but repre, kind of representing them. We see this in um, the third chapter in the 14th verse. It says that John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by, by you. And do you come to me? So it's John's recognizing Jesus as the sinless savior. He's already declared that of him as he was coming to him to be baptized. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is what John declares of him. And now what he's saying is, John, Jesus is saying, John, I need you to baptize me. And, Jesus, and then John's reply is like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I'm a sinner in need of repentance. I'm a sinner who needs to be baptized by you, Jesus. But then as he goes on, he says, no, we need to do this. Let it be so now, he says, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Through Jesus's life, he is fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. And the fact that he's participating in baptism of repentance, even though Jesus had no sins he needed to repent of, it shows that the righteousness he wanted to fulfill was the righteous, righteousness required, not of himself, but of us, of every sinful man. So when you and I, when we are baptized, when Jesus commands the church to go forward, to preach and proclaim his name, to make disciples, to baptize them. And notice how he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name of Jesus is so important because in that you and I, we are identifying with Christ. Christ is in his baptism, identifying with sinful man, but us in our baptism, we're identifying with a righteous, perfect Christ. So Christ's righteousness is accredited to us. In our baptism, our baptism is a baptism in the name of Jesus. It is a baptism of repentance, but it also symbolizes our union with Christ, but not just in his baptism, also in his death, as Paul says in Romans, the sixth chapter. In Jesus's death, he's saying our baptism prefigures, it's a, it symbolizes Jesus's own death. That as you and I, as we go into the, into the grave, as it were, of the waters and we're resurrected again, what, what Paul is declaring, it's the same thing that's happening to Jesus is Jesus is placed into the grave and he's resurrected again. And so Jesus is identifying with us so that we can identify with him. Jesus is passing through the waters of judgment on the, ultimately on the cross as the father accredits all of our sins to him and judges him, therefore Jesus dies on the cross and then is placed in the tomb, resurrected again so that you and I can identify with Christ's perfection and identify with Christ's newness of life. That's why when we perform a baptism, we say, you are buried with Christ in death and you're raised to walk in newness of life. Jesus has passed through the judgment. He's offering grace to us. He's offering new life to us. After Jesus's baptism, go back to thinking about what happens to Israelites. After they pass through the Red Sea, what happens next? They go into the wilderness. They're led of God into the wilderness. And the same thing is declared of Jesus. After his baptism, Jesus is led of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now the same thing again has happening in Israel. They're gonna be led of God to into the wilderness where they too will be tested, where they too will be tempted. Now, a couple of things like, gosh, we could preach a whole sermon here. In fact, like a, one of the, as I read and studied, one of the guys I, I want to listen to uh, this um, 
preacher, British preacher that I absolutely love, uh, who is now passed away. And I was listening to him and he says, you know, uh, uh, now we're in sermon number six, as we said. This is the sixth sermon on the temptation of Jesus. And I was like, oh, dang. <laughs> this mug done preached six sermons on this. I'm gonna preach it in one. But there's tons here, but I did wanna make notes. Notice what it says about temptation here. That Jesus's temptations were God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. That Jesus is being led of the Spirit. God led the Israelites into the wilderness to be tested to be tempted, the same thing we could say about us. But notice they're God-ordained, they're God-led, but they're not God-inflicted. The Bible is clear that God, Father, Son, neither Father, Son, nor the Holy Spirit is the one that tempts us, that Satan is the tempter. You look at James, we even says, let no one say when he's tempted to, to do sin that he's tempted by God because God is neither tempted by sin, neither does God tempt those to sin. They're God-ordained, God-appointed to test us, to strengthen us, to, to show us who God really is. But it's ultimately, it's Satan who is doing the work. They're God-ordained, but they're not God-inflicted. What we see in the temptations of Jesus, in the same way I've said, is we see a past component. We see a present component when in Matthew chapter four, and we see from, from the perspective of Matthew four, a future component. The past component is even in the temptations, they're gonna be very similar to the temptations and the testing and the trials that the Israelites underwent in the, in the wilderness. Then there's the future component. Jesus is being tempted here. A real temptation is happening. And then there is this, I mean, that's the present component. Then there is a future component. The truth is Satan has a very thin playbook. I say that often. He's got a very thin playbook and he runs a very short few plays on us to tempt us. What we see even in these temptations that have happened in the past, temptations are happening to Jesus. Oftentimes there's the same temptations that happen to you and I to get us to sin. If we were to peel them back and to see what the temptation is really happening at the root, there are similar temptations that they have. In fact, the same weapon that the enemy uses on the Israelites and uses on Jesus is the same weapon that he uses on us. And it's the weapon of lies. And what Satan loves to do is he loves to misalign the character and the nature and the work of God, your identity in God. He loves to lie about that. What he does is he takes a form of truth and then he twists it and misaligns it and makes it and turns it into a lie. He takes it out of its context and he applies it. He did it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, especially with Eve. Did God truly say to you these things? He's taking the word of God and he's misaligning it. And ultimately what he's trying to do is misalign the character of God. That's one of the reasons why we care about theology, theology proper here so that we can have a right understanding of who God is so that we can stand firm when we're tested and when we're tried, when the enemy comes to us and bringing these lies. We see the same thing happening here. Notice Satan in each one of these temptations, Satan is misquoting misapplying, misusing scripture in every one of them. The absolute truth beneath, mo this is true statement. Beneath most sins and most temptations, when you peel them back in that temptation, it's not just about the pleasure or the thing that's out there for you to do. The real true lie is a, is a lie about the character and the nature and the work of God or a lie about who you are what you mean to God. 
And notice what opposes that lie is the truth of God. It's the truth of God from God's word, properly applied, properly understand, understood. That's what's happening here. Jesus, what is Jesus using? What is Jesus's weapon in order to stand strong in the temptation? What weapon is Jesus using? He's using the sword of the word of God. He's using God's word, rightly understood and rightly applied. And the same thing is true for us. What enables us to stand when we are tempted is a proper understanding and proper application of the word of God. We don't use the word of God like, a, like in a scary movie, how a priest uses a crucifix or uses the Bible. We don't just keep quoting the Bible over and over again and Satan hears that and just flees. But what has to happen is you and I have to believe the truth in the scriptures. That when we're tempted, we're tempted to misbelieve something, to, to mistrust God. And what we have to do is we have to build ourselves up, as Jude writes, in our most holy faith by knowing scripture, by praying scripture, by being firm in scripture so that we can stand when we are tested and when we are tempted, building ourselves up in faith. We have to believe the truth so much that it prevents us from acting on the lie and remaining in the negative emotion or be, being found in the temptation. That's, that's key. That's why right now, uh, uh, Miss D has launched out something we're calling fighter verses on social media. The passages of scripture for us as families to memorize together. Why are we calling them fighter verses? Because God's word is a sword. It's fighter verses as we memorize and get God's word deep inside of our hearts and inside of our souls. As the psalmist says, we hide God's word in our hearts so that we may not sin against God. What enables us to stand on the day of temptation when we're tested and tried is knowing scripture and applying scripture and believing scripture. We believe this truth about God. We believe this about God as it declares him to be and teaches him to be. We believe his character and his nature as it's shown up in scriptures. And we believe it so much that it, it holds us. It prevents us. It bars us from sinning against God. And we see this happening time and time again throughout the temptations. Look at them with me. Temptation number one, verse number two. And Jesus after, says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Like, yes, he is the perfect son of God and he is yet fully man. I mean, I fast 40 minutes and I'm hungry, right? So you, could, you can't really make it 40 minutes, can you? And Jesus has gone 40 days and 40 nights and people go like, well, did he have anything to eat? That's not the point, right? The point is he's done it. We just declare it. It's, it is what it is. We know this, he's fasted in some fashion and he's hungry, that much we know. And the tempter came and he said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone and every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is hungry. And so the, the, but listen, that's true, Jesus is hungry. But the temptation is not for Jesus to break the fast. I remember years ago, I was listening to a preacher, preacher from a charismatic um, genre of church. And this guy was saying that the Lord had told him to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 nights, yeah, 40 days and 40 nights. And this guy says, on the sixth day of my fast, I heard the spirit say to me, break your fast because Jesus has fasted for you. You don't have to. And I want to call that joker up and say, Jesus didn't tell you that. You just got hungry. You know, that's as long as you could go. You had six days worth of faith in you and that was it, man. And you, you know, broke your fast. But listen, the temptation 
is not for Jesus to break the fast and enjoy breakfast, right? That's what breakfast means, breaking the fast, the fast overnight. It's not, that's not the temptation here is for Jesus to eat and enjoy some breakfast. It's not about food. Ultimately, it's about trusting in the provision of God. That it's not about Jesus having an empty belly or a full belly, but ultimately what this is about is Jesus having a contented soul and all that the Father has given him and all of the Father's provision and all that the Father has called him to do. That what Satan is doing is he's calling him to question the goodness of God, the provision of God. We see it all the way back in the garden. We've seen it in Israel and we see Satan running the same play here. What he's saying is, is God the Father is withholding something good for you that you need, food, bread. Now you use your power to circumvent God's plan and you make bread and you make food and you eat it. Remember that in the garden. God is withholding something good. Whenever Eve saw that the tree, the tree from the fruit, when, it, when she saw that it was, it was good to be eaten, it was desirous with her eyes, right? her mouth started watering. It was in that hook in the same way. What he's saying is God is withholding something good in his providential provision. Now you need to circumvent it. You need to go after it. You need to get it. When Jesus is quoting and Jesus says, it is written, he says, it is written, Man shall not live by bread, by bread alone, but by every word from God's mouth. Jesus is referring to the events that happened in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses two and three. It says this, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And look, and he let you hunger. He let you get hungry. He let you f just physically even feel your belly growling. God allowed you to do that in the wilderness. That was part of his providential plan to let you get hungry. But then look, and also he fed you. He fed you with manna. So it's a, a rhythm, a rhythm of hunger and a rhythm of being satisfied. He's allowed you to do that. He lets you know what hunger pains feel like. And then he also lets you know what it feels like to have your belly full. He fed you with manna, which you did not know or did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by, here it is, that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In, in the wilderness, God was testing Israel. And he's saying, I'm revealing what's in your heart through two things, through letting you feel hunger, living in want, and also living in satisfaction. And in both states, what you need to ultimately know is you need to ultimately trust the Lord. Whether you're living in times of want or whether you're living in times of plenty, in both statuses, in both states, you need to trust the Lord and know that God is good and that God is enough. There will be times of want. There'll be times of hunger. There'll be and those times is what he's saying, they have a purpose in our lives and it's true for every one of us. This is where we fast forward to here and now. Physical deprivation is not always bad. Sometimes it can be the will and the work of God because it tests our faith. 
doesn't just test it as a pass and a fail, but ultimately when the Bible talks about testing our faith, it's talking about purifying our faith and strengthening in our faith. You take a piece of iron and you put it into a, a forge. You're testing that. You let it get heated up and all the dross gets removed and comes out of the forge stronger. It's plunged into the, into the water that's quenching it. And when it's quenched, it's stronger. And the same thing he does to our faith, he lets us have times of deprivation times of want, times of need in order to strengthen us and strengthen our faith. He's talking about contrasting ways to live ultimately in Christ. There are two types of ways that we can live our lives. We can live our lives according to our appetites and our desires, living for pleasures, living life in order to gain and to get by whatever means necessary, or we can live lives trusting the Lord declaring that the Lord is not enough, living a life of satisfaction and contentment in God, even in times of want. Personal pleasure and physical appetites cannot take precedence over the obedience to the Lord. Even good things that we may hunger and want, even good physical appetites like bread, bread is good. Jesus has gone 40 days without eating bread. Bread is important. And yet what Jesus is declaring, there is no life apart from obedience to the revealed will of God. Paul describes this in Philippians chapter three, verses 18 and 19, two kinds of ways of living. He's warning the church at Philippi of people who have lived their lives as enemies of the cross, people who have left and abandoned their faith. And this is what he says of them. He says, their end is destruction for their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Living your life by just simply your appetites, living your life for personal pleasure and this world alone is idolatry. That's what he means by their God is their belly. It's idolatrous just to live to get and live to be full and to know no contentment whenever their things aren't going perfect to be unable to be contented in God's providential hand and to trust in him when you're in times of want. What does it mean to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Well, in the same way that the children of Israel went out in the mornings and they gathered up manna and they fed themselves on that manna and it was enough for that day. In the same way you and I, we live our lives gathering up the promises of God, storing them up into our hearts, so that we can live lives of faith in the Lord. That ultimately what belief here looks like is contentment in the Lord, even in times of obvious deprivation. What it means for us, I think it means for the single person to be able to live a contented life, growing in their knowledge of God, growing in intimacy of, with God, not growing jealous, not growing bitter, bitter, not living isolated, not living selfish, not living a lonely life, but trusting in Jesus. Does that mean you can't get on mingle.com or whatever? No, that doesn't mean that at all. But ultimately, you're trusting God to work in, 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 whatever, in whatever he does providentially. Ultimately, you're contented. Ultimately, you say, it is well with my soul. God gives me a spouse or doesn't give me a spouse. Ultimately, Christ is enough. And believe me, there are things out there in life that are far worse than living single. 
It means for the infertile couple, being content and trusting the Lord. Doesn't mean you don't explore options. It doesn't mean that. It speaks to the heart. It means that you have a resolute trust and a faith that God holds, God withholds no good thing from you. You live contented. It means to the wife and the husband who desperately wants your spouse to be as spiritually mature or as godly or hungry for the things of God as you are or this other spouse may be. It means you don't grow bitter. You're not, you don't act spitefully. You don't live in jealousy. Doesn't mean that there aren't conversations to be had, but ultimately you trust the Lord. It means for those of you that are working in a cruddy job, no amens, that's good. Your boss may be watching. Some of you are living in a cruddy job. It means you work hard in that cruddy job. You do it with integrity. You do it with excellence as unto the Lord, with a resolute heart and a resolute mind that God will will give you that man doesn't live by bread alone. Man doesn't live by good jobs alone. Man doesn't live by a faithful spouse. Man doesn't live by a spouse. Man doesn't live by children. Man doesn't live by any of those things. But what is needed most is God, as he's declared himself to be in his word. Temptation number two. Glad there weren't six of them. Look at what it says. Then the devil took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But here what Satan is doing is Satan is undermining the the presence of God. Now, I don't just mean the presence of God as in God is like physically with Jesus. And we know that he is, right? We just said that. He's in him, even in his presence being known as the Holy Spirit has come down, has manifested himself upon him. I'm not just meaning that God's presence there, but what I'm ultimately also pointing at is that God is for you, that God is with you, that God approves of you. And the temptation here is for you to prove God's presence, for you to prove God's faithfulness, for you to prove God's uh, approval through, um, through something spectacular. That's the temptation. That if God is for you and God is with you, then God will rescue you through this miraculous deal, through this spectacular event, through you, Jesus, getting all the attention on you, jumping off of jumping off of the temple and watching God's angels rescuing you. And what Jesus is quoting here is Jesus is saying, no, we're not gonna put God to the test. What Satan is doing is he's misquoting Psalm 91. He's taking Psalm 91 from its context. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is quoting Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 6. The context of what Jesus is quoting is the incident at a little city called Massa. It's where the Israelites run out of water. They get into this area, they're out of water. They come to like basically probably like a dry creek bed. We thought there was gonna be water here. There's supposed to be an oasis, there's no water. They freak out. And then what they begin to do is they begin to question whether the Lord is among them or not. Now, again, they're not looking for the presence of God, but what they're saying, is God for us or is he not? Has God led us out of Egypt to now kill us by thirst in this wilderness? What is God doing? They're putting God to the, to to the test. 
What they're saying is, God, we're challenging you to prove yourself, to vindicate yourself, to show up by providing a miracle here. Now listen, God acquiesces and God does it. Even though they attempted to the force of they, they attempted to, to force God's hand, God shows up and he does it. He has Moses strike the rock and water flows from it. But ultimately what God says is this is an act of disobedience. This is an act of unbelief, what you've done here. You've demanded a sign from me. You've questioned my presence. After everything I've done for you and been with you, now you're gonna question my presence, my, my, uh, my approval of you. It shows up again for us even in the book of Hebrews. So the writer of Hebrews writing to the New Testament church says, hey, don't be like them and working in unbelief like they did at Massa. Same thing. Jesus will say over and over again of the Jews during his time that they are a wicked and adulterous generation because they demand a sign. They're always looking for God to prove himself, to test himself. And Jesus will refuse over and over again because it's, that's not faith when we demand God to prove himself in some spectacular thing. It's disbelief. It's disbelief. That in fact, what Satan is quoting and misquoting, I mean, this gives us a good lesson in hermeneutics here, how to properly apply the text of scripture. Because ultimately what Psalm 91 is about is about confidence. It's about how to have confidence in God. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's about having confidence in God. And we trust in the presence of God, the approval of God in our hearts and in our lives, not because of the miraculous, but because of the promises of God. The promises of God, listen, the promises of God inform our emotions. Our emotions don't disprove the promises of God. You can look at Romans chapter eight. Again, they're questioning God's presence among them. They're questioning God's approval on them. They're questioning, is God for me or is God against me? Romans chapter eight, Paul picks up on that same argument. And what Paul says in Romans chapter eight is here's how you know that God is for you. He doesn't say, look into your heart and see if you think God likes you. He doesn't say, look around you at your circumstances and make sure if everything's all lined out and you got the perfect family and the perfect job and the perfect car and the perfect, all everything's working good, then you know God is for you. In Romans chapter eight, he doesn't put to, point to anything subjective, but he points to something objective, the cross of Christ. Here's how you know that God will not withhold anything good for you. Here's how you know that, there is, that God is for you and God is not against you. Here's how you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. You look to a bloody cross on which Jesus will hang as a declaration that he is for you and not against you if you believe in that. And so despite our circumstances, despite our emotions, our emotions, our emotions don't change the promises of God. The promises of God inform our emotions. That's faith. That's living by faith is whenever you go like, hey, my life's a wreck right now, but I'm gonna read in scripture and I read this and I believe this. I look at this that is, that is objective truth of declarations that God is making and I believe these and I believe this about me. And then how do I know that? How has he proved it? Why I remember the cross and I remember an empty tomb and I remember an occupied throne. That's what's happening here. So taking place here, Satan is trying to get him to do something miraculous, do something spectacular. 
Jesus ultimately, he's saying, no, 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 we don't put God to the test here. We trust God. We believe this about to be true about God. Temptation number three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone. Woo, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I love that. Satan's trying to tempt Jesus to pay homage to Satan. Take a bow and knee to me. Jesus is like, you kidding me? Worship you? I worship the Lord your God and only him shall I see. See the irony though in this, the irony in this is this will be true of Jesus. That what Satan is tempting Jesus in this moment will become true of Jesus in the future. Right now today, and I've already said it, right now today, where's Jesus? Where is he right now? He's in heaven, seated on a throne. And what is he doing? He's reigning, he's ruling, he's holding the very cosmos together. He's interceding on our behalf. That's where he is right now. Jesus will come again to this earth and when Jesus comes again, he's gonna be riding on a white horse as a signa, to signify his victory. Jesus is gonna have a long robe. At some point, Jesus is gonna throw his robe back and maybe Jesus got a tattoo. Maybe it's just written there in Sharpie marker. I don't know. But the writer of Revelation says, written on Jesus's thigh is this, his new title that he now has, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That what Satan is doing right here is he is tempting Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, you can have a crown without going to the cross. See, how does Jesus become King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He does it by going to the cross, defeating Satan on the cross, rising again, ascending on high, being coronated by the Father, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The path for Jesus to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to have all of the nations, all of the kingdoms bowing before him, Philippians, right? Paul says this, that there's coming a day in the future, every knee is gonna bow, every tongue is gonna confess. That's already secured. That is going to happen because of Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection out of the tomb and who the father has established him to be. He has all of the kingdom. He has all of their glory. But what Satan is doing is Satan is saying that there is a way for you to get that, to get a crown without going to the cross. And it is untrue. It is a lie that he is telling him. All you gotta do, he says, is bow the knee, pay homage to me and not by acquiring it through obedience to the Father. Satan's temptation is for Jesus to circumvent suffering and pain in this world, to circumvent momentary pain and momentary suffering in order to get what only God can give, to circumvent the promises of God and to get it through other means that only God can really give joy and peace and satisfaction and ultimately eternal life. And those things, they come through pain. Oftentimes they come through sacrifice. What Satan is promising is that these things can come from worshiping him. The truth is that sin makes 1,000, thousands of broken promises that it will never truly fulfill. True fulfillment and joy comes through our obedience to the Lord. Ultimately, Jesus says to Satan, Satan, be gone, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and they were ministering to him. That Jesus is victorious 
over the temptation of the devil. Jesus is the perfect obedient son who secures our righteousness and our obedience for us. That Jesus is representing us in this temptation as Jesus stands. Just like on the day when David fought Goliath, David is representing all of the armies of God, all of the people of God, all of the Israelites. David is the representative. Goliath is, is the champion of the Philistines coming in. He's representing all of evil. And we see that David slays him. And in the same way, Jesus here, he is going to fight the giant of Satan on our behalf. He's going out before us. And Jesus is victorious over the devil's temptations. Number two, this also teaches us that Jesus is sympathetic, our sympathetic high priest. That Jesus is reigning and ruling and he's also interceding for you and I. That because Jesus has been tempted in every way like us, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest so that when we go to him, when we pray to him, he understands what it feels like to be tempted and to feel weak. He knows what that feels like because he's been there. The writer of Hebrews tells us then we can, draw, we can have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. We can find mercy and we can find grace in our time of need, in our time of temptation because Jesus has felt what temptation feels like. And Jesus is the ultimate victorious king. He defeated Satan on the cross. The Satan is not only defeated here in the wilderness, but ultimately scripture is clear that Jesus defeats him, making a show of him openly, Paul writes. It's through the cross and through the resurrection. And let us remember that. Let us remember that as we face temptation in our own lives. Let us remember that Satan is an already defeated foe. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you've gone before us representing us, that you were willing to identify as a human and not just to identify as a human, that even though you never sinned, you identified with us as sinners. You allowed yourself to be tempted. You allowed yourself to be made weak. You allowed yourself even to succumb to death, even death on a cross, to be a curse in our place, to take on our punishment in our place so that we can have your righteousness. You tasted, in, in your baptism symbolizes this, you tasted that separation, you tasted that judgment, the very wrath of the Father, so that we can taste righteousness and approval and adoption. Thank you. You took on the judgment so that we can find mercy and grace. You are the ark that saves us, takes us through the waters of judgment. For that, we praise you. We worship you. We serve you. We don't bow a knee to this world. Pray, Lord, that this world, that we would recognize that it is failing and it's falling away, that it's temporary. Lord, we pray that we would not love this world or the things in this world. Because if the love of the world is in us, then the love of the Father is not in us. For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from you, but it is from the world. And this world is passing away, even with its desires. But whoever does your will, we will abide forever. May we do your will. May we declare that you are enough, that you love us. May we not put you to the test. May we 
not just live for bread and for our bellies and for our appetites and for personal pleasures, but may we live for you. May we not try to circumvent the cross in our own life. May we gladly take up our crosses as we follow you for your fame and for your glory. We pray that in your name. Amen.